as I was uh, sitting with you during the 645 sitting, uh, I was reminded of a, a passage from Rumi, I think. See, I don't remember who it was. Uh, that someone shared in one of the groups that I've used often. And it's the passage that says, out beyond uh, our ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, something like that. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Even the idea, each other, doesn't make any sense. And it's so obvious to me, as we all sit here in the silence, um, and you, I, I have some assumption that when you taste that moment of silence, this moment of just being here in the most simple way, um, all of your ideas of right doing and wrong doing melt away. And all that you can probably say about yourself is that you, that you are. You can't even, in a, with a sense of true immediacy, true, you could say, here-ness and now-ness, you can't even say, I am a man or I am a woman. All of your titles are gone, all of your roles, all of your notions that depend on your memories and on your thoughts. Um, you have to, in order to even define yourself as any of those things, you have to in some way consult your memory. But on, as to use the word Mark used last night, on the evidence, on present evidence, all you can say is, you are. Or we are. We can't even say that. Anyway, that's what dawned on me as I was sitting this evening before the, before the group. It, it just seemed so, it was so delicious to step outside of our ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, all of our identities. And then I was thinking of that in the face of, of the, um, the relentless uh, tendency of our minds to spawn from the from the this simple presence to spawn this phantasmagorical view of ourselves in the world that view that creates a world in our minds moment to moment that is flawed that sense of ourself that is flawed and how that uh, how that happens completely unbidden, and how when we actually look for that person that we think that we are, we can't even find it. Well, all we find is, I am, or the sense of presence. And to think, as the, as the Buddha spoke about it very specifically, and I'll just touch on it, that this whole way of viewing our life and our world, how it all starts. Of course, the, it, on one hand, it's beginningless. We can't find a beginning for it. But what we can begin to see is the, the spawning of, that, of all of our notions about ourselves and each other. It starts with little moments, little moments of seeing, of hearing, of smelling, of tasting, of touching, little moments of thinking. Starts with these simple moments of contact at one of the doors of perception. And depending on what happens at that moment of contact, there is a, there is a little charge that, gets, um, that takes place. And that charge is, the, is a feeling that's based on a perception of whether something is pleasant or unpleasant, or neither, depending on that perception, it spawns a little reaction in our mind, what we call liking, disliking, or denying, or 
spacing out. And from those little fleeting reactions of liking and disliking, the pressure created by that, uh, that pressure squeezes out and, and spawns this drama that plays in our minds, the sense of, I want something that's not happening, as Mark spoke so beautifully last night about that wanting things to be different than the way, we are, than the way they are, or not wanting something. And before you know it, the mind, the thinking mind takes the shape of the imagined seeker, the imagined person, Again, this is all virtual. Nothing has really happened. We've just been sitting here. <laughs> but the imagined one that plays out in our mind starts strategizing how to get away. Isn't, isn't that the Southwest Airlines commercials? <laughs> how to get away. <laughs> and before you know it, the mind is on to that second noble truth that Mark spoke about. It's in a state of, of, um, of wanting what I don't have and not wanting what I do have, lost in, a, in the mental world of becoming, becoming either more um, filled with pleasure or um, free of pain or becoming someone who, would, who is better than the one that I am right now. So all of this, what's called papancha, or proliferation of thoughts that comes in the form of, of, there's three kinds of papancha. One is the papancha around craving, thirst, and a kind of delight that comes with thirsting for something pleasurable. And the phenomena that maybe you've even noticed on the retreat is the, uh, what we call, at least in the thirst category, uh, and it comes both as attraction and aversion. But uh, the phenomenon that's common on a retreat is what we call the VR, especially for those of you who are new to practice. VR is called Vipassana romance, where that little fleeting, that charge of seeing a pleasant person spawns a sense of liking, and that liking, unnoticed, spawns more becoming, pretty soon that person that was triggered in your visual or auditory field, your mind creates a massive fantasy where that person becomes the secret to your happiness. <laughs> and the mating dance takes place, <laughs> the travel, the children, the divorce, whatever it is. <laughs> Again, nothing has happened all taking place in our mind. And then the reverse is the, what we call the VV, or the Vipassana Vendetta, <laughs> where, where that trigger of contact produces a feeling based on perception of unpleasantness. Perception is based on memory. Unpleasantness, and that spawns a disliking, and then pretty soon, if it if the force of it especially gets strong on retreat sometimes because there's not much, there's not much entertainment. And so the, the mind, as Mark said last night, it fixates. And before you know it, that person becomes the, the reason for all of your misery. And the only possible way of feeling any relief is to uh, rid yourself of their presence or that, that person must change. Each of these activities of mind the wanting and the proliferation of thought around wanting and aversion, and then all the stories that get generated from the insecurity that ensues from that kind of habit of mind, all of that that we attribute, that easily we attribute to the conditions, the so-called conditions, either inner or outer conditions that aren't quite right, all of it is not so much because the conditions aren't right, it's because we have lost contact with our nature. We've lost contact with presence. We've, we've entered into that virtual world of imagination and lost touch with 
with the uh, true source of relief and freedom. And of course, we're taught to, from the time we're born, to, uh, to spin out in this way. We're taught, literally taught from the time we're born, to go out of ourselves and search, to leave ourselves, to abandon ourselves. Countless, countless times, we, uh, our mind is trained to lay blame for our discomfort, to replay past conversations and project all of our negativity on the, the so-called cause of our suffering in our life. Not realizing that what's actually causing our suffering, of course, not in the case of when we're actually under physical attack or emotional abuse, but a lot of our imagined suffering is really from that loss of presence, loss of immediacy. So all of the teachings that we offer here the, are a constant reminder, as all wisdom teachings are, they are a constant reminder that you, one way of putting it, and we put it all put it in our own words, and those words change all the time, that you are what you are looking for. That in one way you are already abiding in what you are looking for. And that when our mind and when our mind is triggered by liking and disliking, when it's triggered by one of these fantasies and one of our strongly attractive or aversive reactions, that our practice is to be able to use those reactions, the awareness of those reactions, rather, rather than using those reactions to send us further away from ourselves, further into that, um, that um, endless wait for the, for the future that never arrives. Why does it not arrive? Because time is always now. Rather than sending us into that imagined future, the very function of our awareness is to use that experience, that charge, that liking, that disliking, the thoughts, the reactions, the wanting, the not wanting, the, the worry, everything, using everything as the reminder of uh, what we're looking for, a reminder to to let the awareness shine on that experience, to make that shift from being carried along, that profound but liberating shift from being carried along by whatever our mind is doing to slowly waking up and knowing, ah, this is the mind of grasping. This is the mind of aversion. This is the mind of peace. This is the mind of wanting. This is the mind of, of, of fear. This is the mind of jealousy. This is the mind of comparing. This is the judging mind. Where all of those experiences, and I know I'm repeating things that we've said all along, all of those experiences are used in the service of, of awakening us to, the, to our natural home. Um, as Trungpa Rinpoche calls them, the manure of Bodhi, the fertilizer of our awakening. Now, this is not our normal habit of viewing what we're, what we're doing. Habit is to, to, um, to want to, and it's part of our state of becoming, is to want to delete what it is that's happening. Practice is, de not, is not deleting. It is making, um, it, it's not even changing what is in our mind or our body. It's really coming into that wise relationship. And that simply, that occurs simply from letting ourselves uh, or learning how to be aware of what it is that's happening. So notice, even if you ha experience right now as you're sitting here, if you're experiencing something unpleasant, anybody experiencing anything unpleasant? Wow. Surprise, surprise, <laughs> not really. So whatever that is, or whether it's pleasant, just notice that for a moment and just experience its quality. It's called Vedana, experience of unpleasantness. 
or if it's pleasant, experience of, of pleasantness. Again, this is based on our perception, because something we can start experiencing as unpleasant, sometimes when we hang out with it a while, it stops being unpleasant. Sometimes it gets more unpleasant. But notice, though, if when you, you just mix that experience with awareness, without trying to alter it in, in any way, what happens? to your suffering. Where is the suffering when you're not in, a, in that contentious relationship with your experience? Now you may notice that, that you're also resisting your experience. Anybody resisting their experience right now? Okay, now I want you to, if you can, it's a little subtle, but I want you to simply pay attention to that quality of not liking of resistance. Sense what that's like. See if, you, if there's a felt sense of resisting. So that in your mind you can say, oh, resisting's like this. And notice what happens to resisting when it's included in your awareness. you may notice that the, that the suffering about your experience begins to minimize or get reduced. Now, all that we did here was simply apply awareness to whatever's there. It has that, that quality within it of non-grasping, of unsticking. So we, this whole process that we're involved in is a process of unbinding, a, a, an unwinding of the tendency to, to be like this, to be reactive, to grasp. It's this simple activity of going from this to this. This, hold on really tight for a moment. Really grab tight, grab, tightly, and then let it go. It's that simple, in a way. And it's, it's this quality of relinquishing, of letting go, that the Buddha discovered under the Bodhi tree. Ajahn Sumedha, one of our favorite teachers, reduces all of what we're doing to the practice of opening this fist. He says, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds that are obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go. Rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that, achieve this and go into that, and read this, and read the sutras, study the Abhidharma, that's Buddhist psychology, Learn Pali and Sanskrit, the Madhyamaka and the Prajnaparamita. Get ordinations in the Hinayana, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana. <laughs> write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world expert, world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, <laughs> just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. But instead, I suggest just being an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world. Just be an earthworm who knows only two words. Let go, let go, let go. Now, it's so amazing that you could reduce the entirety, the volumes, the those years, I, I forgot which one of the, our gurus said that, uh, yeah, the Buddha taught for 45 years. 
that it could all be reduced to this. And, but it's the bottom line. It's liberation through non-clinging. That's the, the, the composite teaching. But the Buddha came by it through that, the same organic process that you did. And I found it very useful to look at what actually happened in his life and how the shaping of the teachings is, uh, reflects the different stages of his own understanding. And in fact, the fourth noble truth, the truth that Mark didn't uh, quite get to last night, uh, is really in some ways a description of what happened in his evolving understanding. The so-called noble eightfold path that has three basic parts to it. It has the, it's sometimes called the threefold way. It has a, a section called sila, or the foundation of ethics and morality. It's got the meditative section called samadhi, and it's got the wisdom section called panya, sila, samadhi, panya. And the world of sila, the world of ethics and morality, the Buddha was very, was a very central part of the, what he called the purification process, the purification of action. And the purification of action, which means to act in ways that are non-harming with our speech, uh, with all the precepts that you've taken on this retreat, with our livelihood, just the way that we conduct ourselves in the world, that to live a life of what he called to offer the world and each other the gift of what he called blamelessness, and also offering the gift of fearlessness, not in the sense of being fearless, but in offering that quality of purity in our actions that uh, allows people to be unafraid of us because they can see that what, what you see is what you get. And, and it gives the gift of allowing someone to relax, not to have to, to be on guard in your presence. That this kind of purity of action makes it possible to really enjoy your life. One, your mind is not reverberating every moment from the effects of action that has caused harm, that has generated fear or... or um, uh, pain for others, but, action, but because of the action of purity, your mind is free to experience the, the glorious, as you may have even sensed even in the course of these few days, because we're practicing purity of action on retreat. We create a, a very safe container where we really take care of each other, and we give each other that gift of fearlessness, where we don't have to be afraid of each other. And in that openness, what happens to your capacity to take in the beauty around you, the, the, the nature, your, your sense experience? The Buddha spoke about, he saw that this was the foundation, that living a, a, a wholesome life is the foundation to enjoy the whole range of sensual pleasures. The pleasure of good company, the pleasure of solitude, the pleasure of, as I say, the pleasure of the senses, that it's not an accident, that it's really the fruit of, of having lived a, a, a good life. Those who, are, who have not lived such a uh, wholesome, healthy life or are actively doing things that cause suffering, their minds are often quite, dis quite disturbed, not the kind of disturbance that you have from, from the ignorance of of, um, of following your thoughts all the time or following the virtual version, but the kinds of thoughts that are the tormenting thoughts of, of replaying events that you have done that, where you've caused harm, where you have regret, where you have guilt, where you have all sorts of um, effects of, of some kind of compulsive activity that, you, that caused you or someone else harm. This makes it very difficult for us. It, it makes us to some degree, and, and when I say this, this is not in any way to, if you notice, because all of us have some version of this, it's not to cause any judgment, but it's to see that for ourselves that 
that there is a real effect to be, the effect is to become um, preoccupied with a kind of internal drama and then unable to make contact with each other and to make contact with the world and then to respond wisely to our world and to ourselves and be able to listen. So this was the the arena, and these were these teachings of ethics and morality were already common in the time of the Buddha. And he saw that there was a direct link to this purity of action and being able to enjoy the, the pleasures of the senses. But he had all that. He had purity of action, and he had an enormous enjoyment of the senses. And what happened to him? As Mark spoke last night, he was confronted with, uh, traditionally it's called, he was confronted with the the heavenly messengers, the first three being sickness, old age, and death. He saw an old person, a sick person, and a a corpse. And fortunately, he saw a fourth in the form of a mendicant or a renunciate, somebody who was living a different kind of life. But he looked at those conditions, and he saw that, that well, for him, what happened is, at least the way it's talked about, is his pride in his youth, and you know, he was 29 at the time that he had this realization, his, the pride in his youth just melted away. And then he saw that everybody gets sick and old, and then the pride in health melted away. So we tend to be very prideful about our health. And then seeing the corpse, his pride in life melted away. But it led led to that deep inquiry about uh, what life is about. If, if we're, we're all born, get old, and die, and if that means that everything that we hold near and dear, everything that we enjoy uh, passes away, every gathering ends in separation. So that's not very, that doesn't sound like it causes much happiness, even though being a good person allows you to enjoy all of that. Ultimately, the world of sense pleasures, he saw, was, um, was governed by the definition of dukkha. One of the definitions I think that Mark shared last night, the definition of dukkha as unreliable, could not be seen. The whole world of the glorious world of sense pleasures could not be seen as a reliable refuge not be seen as something that could give a sense of, of lasting satisfaction. But that left him with a state of a different kind of um, issue. It left him with a deep longing and actually strengthened that longing, the desire. And I, I think of the Buddha as somebody who was filled with desire. But what I like to think of the Buddha's desire, it was a holy desire. And I think it's the same desire that each of us has in our heart of hearts. Our desires may get confused. We may have what he called misplaced faith in applying our desires to things that won't necessarily uh, deliver the goods, like like, uh, this character who uh, um, Mark was nice enough to share this this uh, character from the outside magazine advertisement, a fellow named Spence, who is pictured here with a lot of stuff. And Spence, the caption says, puts a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. (laughs) Just since I'm doing this, I'll read the rest of it. That's why he also has a new Ford Ranger. (laughs) So he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment, isn't that cynical? (laughs) And connect with Mother Earth by looking no further than into the planet's coolest four-door pickup truck. (laughs) And this is the, the most insane part. He says it gives him easy access to inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. I have to share one more. I, I, I just re- 
re started recirculating this story that um, a couple months ago at a retreat, and I just wanted to share it with you because it's such an expression of the innocent desire for relief and pleasure, but the, um, the unreliability. And this is the 1997 Darwin Award winner. The Darwin Awards is an annual honor given to the person who did the gene pool the biggest service by killing or injuring themselves in the most extraordinarily stupid way. The 1995 winner was a fellow who was killed by a Coke machine that toppled on top of him when he was trying to attempt to get a free soda. 1996 winner was an Air Force sergeant who attached two jet-propelled rocket units to his car and crashed it into a cliff several hundred feet above the roadbed. And then the 1997 winner, sorry about this, Larry Waters of Los Angeles, one of the few Darwin Award winners to survive his award-winning accomplishment. Larry's boyhood dream was to fly. When he graduated from high school, he joined the Air Force in hopes of becoming a pilot. Unfortunately, poor eyesight disqualified him. When he was finally discharged, he was had to satisfy himself with watching jets fly over his backyard. One day, Larry had a bright idea. He decided to fly. He went to the local Army-Navy surplus store and purchased 45 weather balloons and several tanks of helium. The weather balloons, when fully inflated, would measure more than four feet across. Back home, Larry securely strapped the balloons to his sturdy lawn chair. He anchored the chair to the bumper of his Jeep and inflated the balloons with helium. He climbed on for a test while it was still only a few feet above the ground. Satisfied it would work, Larry packed several sandwiches and a, and a six-pack of Miller Lite, loaded his pellet gun, figuring he would pop a few balloons when it was time to descend, and went back to the floating lawn chair. He tied himself along with his pellet gun and provisions. Larry's plan was to lazily float up to a height of about 30 feet above his backyard after severing the anchor and in a few hours come back down. Things didn't quite work out that way. When, when he cut the cord anchoring the lawn chair to his Jeep, he didn't float lazily up to 30 or so feet. Instead, he streaked into the LA sky as if shot from a cannon. He didn't level off at 30 feet, nor did he level off at 100 feet. After climbing and climbing, he leveled off at 11,000 feet. At that height, he couldn't risk shooting any of the balloons, <laughs> lest he unbalance the load and really find himself in trouble. So he stayed there drifting, cool and frightened, cold and frightened for about 14 hours. Then he really got in trouble. He found himself drifting into the primary approach corridor of LA International Airport. A United pilot first spotted Larry. He radioed the tower and described passing a guy in a lawn chair with a gun. <laughs> Radar confirmed the existence of an object floating 11,000 feet above the airport. LAX emergency procedure swung into full alert. Helicopter was dispatched to investigate. LAX is on the ocean. Night was falling. An offshore br breeze began to flow. It carried Larry out to sea with the helicopter in hot pursuit. <laughs> Several miles out, the helicopter caught up with Larry. Once the crew determined that Larry was not dangerous, they attempted to close in for a rescue, but the draft from the blades would push Larry away whenever they neared. Finally, they caught him. And they lowered a rescue line. Larry snagged the line and was hauled back to shore. The difficult maneuver was flawlessly executed by the helicopter crew. As soon as Larry was hauled to Earth, he was arrested by waiting members of LAPD for violating LAX airspace. <laughs> as he was led away in handcuffs, a reporter dispatched to, to cover the daring rescue asked why he had done it. Larry stopped, turned, and replied nonchalantly, a man can't just sit around. This misplaced faith in the, in the pleasure of, of our sense experience um, 
of course, in all of us, in some form or another, is hardened into very addictive patterns of, of being um, compulsive, compulsively um, obsessed by, by what's next. And a much di- more difficult time at uh, resting, as uh, one of my favorite teachers, Nosho Kempo, puts it, resting in natural great peace. He has this wonderful poem where he says, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. The samsara, the loop that we get into, is the the subtle danger in the world of making sense pleasures our devotion. Every pleasure, as Mark, I think, suggested last night, every single pleasure has the nature to arise and has the nature to pass away. This is why that chant that Heather sang the other night, every day in Asian countries, uh, in countries where practice is done like this, they chant, all things are impermanent, they arise and they pass away, you know, the whole routine. To be in harmony with that truth uh, brings great happiness. Somehow, through a trick of our misperception or understanding, we, we have lost our understanding of that obvious fact of change. But it's not just change, it's not just a loss of the pleasures, but the wake of our devotion to sense pleasures leaves a, a residue of further wanting, especially if it was associated with pleasure. Have you noticed, maybe, maybe this was mentioned, Have you noticed when you take a bite of food, that first burst of flavor, and there's a kind of delight that comes into the mind, and then that flavor begins to fade, passes away, but usually almost before that flavor even has any chance of waning, the fork is in for the next bite, that loop around and around, has led to more, in so many different forms, more compulsive activity. And unfortunately, hasn't made anybody happy. And that's often the kind of happiness that people are searching for, uh, even here at Spirit Rock, the happiness that comes through a pleasurable experience. Um, And if that's in some ways your aim, you won't be so happy here not to joke about it too much. (laughs) The Buddha talked about this kind of happiness. He called it lokiya sukha, worldly happiness, conventional happiness. He called it the kind of happiness that we experience when we get what we want. The kind of happiness that depends on conditions being a certain way. When the conditions are right, we get the pleasure, get the happiness. When they're not right, we get the we get the misery. We're not happy. And that creates this feeling in our mind that we have to have things. Over and over, we have to have things in order to be happy. Nisargadatta puts it this way, as long as we believe that we need things to make us happy, we also shall believe that in their absence we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. Pleasure is a distraction, for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy, when in reality it's just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as, there's nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the ultimate purpose of practice is to reach a point where this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual, ever-present experience. Every moment of mindfulness, we are reminding ourselves. If we meet an experience with that open light of awareness, we are reminding ourselves that nothing is wrong with us. You can't believe that something is wrong with you and be mindful in the same moment. Mindfulness just knows what's happening. And that knowing what's happening is not making an evaluation of good, bad, right, wrong, 
So after all, the ultimate purpose of sadhana is to reach a point where this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual, ever-present experience. Which experience? The experience of being empty. That's the same as being present. Being empty, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It is like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is this openness, emptiness of all content. True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. You are what you are searching for. Your own, the very one through which you are perceiving is that openness. So the Buddha left with this deep question of where, what is the, you could say, what's the meaning of life? Where is happiness to be found? Where is, where is a reliable happiness to be found? Because all that he knew of was this lokiya sukha, this happiness that depended on conditions being a certain way. He also called that happiness the happiness of bondage, the happiness of slavery. And so he looked around, and fortunately he saw that monk who, who expressed that, that holy desire by, their, by his actions, that holy desire, that giving rise to that desire for, for a reliable refuge, making it conscious and explicit that desire to be free, that one desire that no other desire could fulfill, the desire that swims against the stream of our ordinary compulsions and addictions, one that says, don't lift out of this moment to find relief, where our mind is constantly going out in search. So he started, he went and found the, the best teachers of the day, as you know the story, most of you know the story, and he learned what they were offering. And what they were offering were, um, they were offering elements of what we're doing here. And primarily the part of what we're doing here called uh, concentration. The part of bringing the mind and body together, allowing that steadiness that one-pointedness, using the simple tool that you may not even appreciate what a profound tool it is, but every time you gather your mind to know what it is that's happening, you're using a quality in your mind. It's the Pali word, if you ever want to look it up, it's called vitaka. It's this quality of gathering. We do it when we bring our attention to anything in our life, whether it's meditative or not. We use this quality of, of vitaka. When it's done with the intention to discover our inner life, it has a sacred power. This gathering, and then a second quality, which you've heard in the instructions, the quality of sustaining, connecting with the breath and sustaining through the duration of it. That quality of sustaining or sinking into, or staying with, those two qualities, if you keep doing it over time, really with any object, People do it with their work. People do it on their cushion. Again, with the intention to awaken one's consciousness, it has a different effect. It all depends on the motivation behind it. But with those two qualities practiced, what, come, what comes quite naturally in time is the, an experience of joy, of, ra of rapture, of intense interest, and a feeling of immovability, of one-pointedness. And with that comes a great sense of, a, of a, um, what the Buddha called unmixed happiness, a, what he called the joy of concentration, or the evolution in his understanding. Was this, this was, um, first he saw the beauty of the purification of action. That's the first part of the Eightfold Path. 
Then he saw the beauty of the purification of mind, because a mind that is well collected and composed experiences this enormous sense of joy, a joy that far exceeds the, the ordinary joy of sense pleasures, a joy that can be sustained for relatively long periods of time, and a kind of liberation, a kind of temporary liberation from those torments of our mind, that mind that wants things to be different. And I have a feeling some of you, probably most of you, at some point in the span of this retreat, you've tasted a moment where your mind wasn't moving this way or that, where you were calm and collected, where you experienced just the, uh, some measure of this sense of, of composure. How many would say, would say had some experience like that? Eventually, and depending on the situation, the situation of our life, all kinds of situations, eventually this kind of pleasure can come into our practice. And people have described it, some in groups. The Buddha realized, however, at a certain point that even though this great purity of mind, this great joy of concentration was so much more refined, compelling, uh, inspiring, he called a springboard to nirvana later on, even though it, it had all of those characteristics he began to realize that this experience, no matter how delicious, was still subsumed under the umbrella of dukkha, unreliable, because eventually it would pass away. And if we, and because of its deliciousness, there will be, and, and the misunderstanding mistaking it for an end rather than a means, it would become what he called a corruption of insight, a corruption of our practice. Many people have described wanting to, re to replicate some pleasurable experience they had. We often joke that, you know, if you, on a previous retreat, you touch some kind of um, moment of rapture, there's a tendency what we call carry the corpses of previous retreats along with you and just carry it along like a burden until and struggle a lot to somehow replicate that experience and it, and it exhausts us and we end up putting excessive energy in our practice and our mind then gets really tense and it just leads to one of those multiple hindrance attacks where we want anything what's, other than what's happening, aversion, dullness, doubt, and a lot of restlessness. So he saw that, um, that this was actually uh, a form of sukha, pleasure. You know, sukha is the opposite of dukkha. Sukha is comfort, pleasure, kind of happiness. But he saw that this, was, this sukha was actually dukkha, or otherwise known as sukha dukkha. <laughs> Hafez wrote about it this way in his poem called The 10,000 Idiots. It's always a danger to aspirants on the path when they begin to believe and act as if the 10,000 idiots who so long ruled and lived inside have all packed their bags and skipped town or died. Did this get read already? Anyway, the 10,000 idiots eventually reemerge. The suppression of the hindrances lasts a time, and then pretty soon we want to replicate that, and then we're, we're going out of ourselves in search, continuing that, that, um, that wanting mind. So at this point in the evolution of the Buddha's understanding, his own life, 
He experienced the, had experienced the purity of action and the purity of mind. There was nobody else to tell him what to do after that. There was just, uh, there was no guidance about where a reliable happiness could be found. Because nobody was offering anything beyond this, this kind of temporary but lovely uh, composure and collectedness. And it's at that time that he set out on his own and he went through the trials and tribulations of the, the ascetic practices where he starved himself and, and denied himself, did self-mortifications. And then he saw that both the devotion to sense pleasures had just made, made his mind addicted and, and uh, dull and the devotion to these practices of ascetic practices just made him basically sick and tired. And then he, it was through this process of, of having gone to extremes, and I, I find this maybe one of the most useful teachings through the years at finding balance in life and our tendency to, to look for the right answer and to go to extremes and become our own version of fundamentalists. But what he found there was what he later taught over and over again, the sense of a middle way, a middle way between indulgence, where it's possible to enjoy the world, the, the world of senses. Or as expressed in the words of Suzuki Roshi, where he says, renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but in having an understanding that they go away. So to have a wise relationship with the world of pleasures and with, with asceticism, which is really a, a, a way of renouncing the, the normal habits, to, but to, to, renounce, to this, bring the spirit of the joy of renunciation, where we give things up not because um, we should or not as a kind of self-denial, because it's, as Alan Watts puts it, because it's good for you, a kind of self-punishment, rather because you see the wisdom in relinquishing the uh, grasping at certain kinds of habits. So the Buddha remembered a time when he was a young boy, but I think either five years old or nine years old, something like that, where he was resting very comfortably, well-fed under a beautiful, beautiful cherry apple tree, and realized that, that the middle way really uh, we need to, to, um, to soften our being. We need to be well-fed. We need to be cared for. We need to have gladness in our heart and a sense of ease in order to practice. The, the strain, the striving, again, has not made anyone truly happy. All, it's, all it does is make us tight. And so if you start feeling really tight, it means you're likely wanting something different to happen. You're using extra energy. So that reminder, it's really okay to relax, to be at ease. And this is really the, the foundation for a stable kind of presence, not one that becomes brittle and then is easily broken apart. So at this point, the Buddha took some food and he, and he, um, he ate, but he was all on his own at this point but he was still driven by that one-pointed interest in a happiness that was reliable. And it's at that point that he sat down under the Bodhi tree, the famous Bodhi tree, and then he used these qualities that develop composure and steadiness, that develop tranquility, concentration, and he aroused his concentration. And it's talked about in the sutras as he entered into the, the states of presence but he didn't just stay in a state of, of concentration. He applied that brightness of mind, that joy and comfort of, of being present, of being embodied, of having everything come together. He applied it to the careful observation of his mind and body, the very same thing that we're doing here. We're paying attention in a, as gentle way as we can to the flow of experience. And he, it's talked about a lot that he didn't allow himself to be carried away by the joy that he experienced from that state of concentration. He kept, he kept going. 
He didn't let himself just indulge. He kept going and he applied his observation to his mind and his body. And what did he discover when he began to apply that steady attention to his mind and body? He saw everything. He saw the whole range of physical sensations, a sea of sensation. He saw the whole range of mental states, of moods, emotions, the same ones that each of us has attended to from time to time on the retreat. He saw that, that world of thinking, and Mark spoke about the assault of Mara in the form of doubts and the, the notions of he shouldn't do this, why doesn't he you know, go back into his life and stop trying to be a yogi? What makes you think you can find a reliable refuge? Just go have some pizza or do you know, something. Wouldn't it be nicer to be somewhere else? But because he had this, this interest, he had given a voice to that desire that no other desire can fulfill, which is really our own nature calling us home, you could say. He had given rise to that desire. He didn't, let, he didn't allow his mind to be bound by those voices. He began to see that everything, everything that came into his mind, no matter what it was, every sensation, every mood, every thought was arising and passing away. It became so clear that in that process of seeing the arising and passing away, that there was nothing there, nothing that could be knowable to any of the senses, nothing in that that could give a sense of lasting satisfaction. And we've spoken of this already. And seeing that nothing was staying the same, that everything was coming and going, it, was, it became clear that nothing in that ever-changing process could be taken to be me, my, or mine. You, it was not possible to take ownership of any of that changing, uh, changing experience. So he saw that it was both changing, unreliable, could not give any lasting satisfaction, and it was selfless. He saw that it was just happening, unbidden, arising and passing. And he saw that all the mental elaborations were just mental elaborations that they had no root, they had no home. All the thoughts, all the images, all the notions, all the experiences. And as he began to see that this whole show that we experience as our life, both the inner world and the outer world, is dreamlike, arising and passing, like a phantom, like a dream, like a bubble, like a, like a, a flash of light. his mind stopped grabbing. It stopped grabbing that which changes, stopped pushing away the unpleasant, grabbing the pleasant, and his mind fell into a, a new understanding, a, a first glimpse, a taste of what he called Lokutra Sukha. Lokutra Sukha as opposed to lokiya sukha, which is conventional happiness, that the kind of pleasure and happiness that comes when you get what you want or that depends on conditions being right, lokutra sukha was a sense of well-being that didn't depend on what was going on, otherwise known as the joy of equanimity, the, the, joy, of, of, um, the joy of a non-reactive heart, mind. And he realized this was the first glimpse of freedom. And he realized as his mind rested in this equanimity 
the more he paid attention, and this is where the power of paying attention is, is um, at least I find this very interesting, the more he paid attention, the brighter his mind got. It was as though every moment of attention kept brightening and brightening and brightening until it said that his mind became luminous, shining with the, its, own ra- its own natural radiance, and that natural radiance then reflecting everything in a crystal clear way. And as he was able to see in, in its clarity, he could see the process of experience that, as he called in a, in a very famous sutra called the All, he, he saw that in the seen, in that which is seen, there's just what's seen. In the heard, just what's heard. In the smelled, just what's smelled. In the tasted, just what's tasted. In the felt, just what's felt. In the cognized, just what's cognized or thought. That's all. Six experiences repeating themselves over and over. No me, no you, no self at all. Just these six experiences arising and passing. And as his mind shined in its clarity, it just kept relaxing into that, that joy of equanimity, a happiness that, was, that exceeded the happiness of sense pleasures and the purity of action, the happiness of concentration and the purity of mind. This was the happiness described as purity of view, because his view had been purified through clear seeing. And as he relaxed into this joy of equanimity, the, the question arose, as it does, and maybe not verbally, and I'm taking some liberties here, okay, if I'm not those thoughts, if I'm not those moods, if I'm not those sensations, then what am I? But quite naturally, as his mind relaxed its tight fist of grasping, let go of the grasping, rested in that equanimity, his mind enfolded on itself. And in a flash of insight, in a flash of insight, he realized that the very reliable refuge that he had been searching for was none other than the very nature of his own mind. That his own very mind's essence, the mind's nature, was free. This is what the Buddha said. For one who clings, motion exists. For one who clings not, there is no motion. When no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where neither coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. When neither, where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond nor a state in between. This is the end of suffering. If that's not clear, I like this passage. There's a field of experience beyond the entire field of matter, the entire field of mind, that is neither this world nor another world, nor both. Neither moon nor sun, this I call neither arising nor passing away, nor abiding, neither dying nor rebirth. It is without support, without development, without foundation. This is the end of suffering. Put in the simplest form, I think it's, it's um, spoken so succinctly by, by, um, by the Zen monk, um, what's his name, Ryokan. He says, Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you ever arrive? Or as Hakuin says, all beings by nature are Buddha, as ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there's no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddha. How sad that people ignore the near and search for truth afar. Like someone in the midst of water crying out in thirst, like a child of a wealthy home wandering among the poor, 
lost on dark paths of ignorance. We wander through the six worlds from dark path to dark path. When shall we be freed from birth and death, this cycle? Those who meditate even once wipe away beginningless crimes. Where are all the dark paths then? The pure land itself is near. Those who listen and hear this truth and listen with a grateful heart, treasuring it, revering it, gain blessings without end. Much more, those who turn about and bear witness to self-nature, self-nature that is no nature, go far beyond mere doctrine. How boundless and free is the sky of awareness. How bright the full moon of wisdom. Truly, is anything missing now? Nirvana is right here before our eyes. This very place is the lotus land, this very body, the Buddha. So no need to change postures. We'll just sit quietly for a moment. May all beings aim for the highest happiness. It is said that if we aim for the highest happiness, all the other kinds of pleasure come in its wake. May all beings be free. Thanks for your long, enduring attention. We have about 25 minutes for walking. Please continue. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.